Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Morris Ardwan, co-host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, which can be found under LGBTQ studies on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Alicia P. Long about her book, Cruising for Conspirators, how a New Orleans DA prosecuted the Kennedy assassination as a sex crime, released in September this year by the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, very happy to be here, and I appreciate you letting me uh, be on your program. Well, we love to have you. This is a terrific book, and it's exactly right up our alley, so um, uh, welcome. I'm going to read an author blurb um, about you so that uh, the listeners can get a little bit of a background. Uh, Alicia P. Long is the John L. Luz and Paul W. and Nancy Murrell Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of History at Louisiana State University. Her other books include Louisiana, Our History, Our Home, Occupied Women, Gender Military Occupation in the American Civil War, and The Great Southern Babylon, Sex, Race, and Respectability in New Orleans, 1865 to 1920. She is a recipient of of the Ford Foundation grant to sponsor the Listening to Louisiana Women Oral History Project, the LSU Rainmaker Award, the Julia Cherry Spruill Publication Prize, and the Wilbur Owen Seifert Prize for the Outstanding Doctoral Dissertation in the Humanities at the University of Delaware. Here's a little bit about the book. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's decision to arrest Clay Shaw on March 1, 1967, set off a chain of events that culminated in the only prosecution undertaken in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In the decades since Garrison captured headlines with his high-profile legal spectacle, historians, conspiracy advocates, and Hollywood directors alike have fixated on how a New Orleans-based assassination conspiracy might have worked. Cruising for Conspirators settles the debate for good, conclusively showing that the Shaw prosecution was not based in fact, but was a product of the criminal justice system's long-standing preoccupation with homosexuality. Tapping into the public's willingness to take seriously conspirational explanations of the Kennedy assassination, Garrison drew on the copious files the New Orleans police had accumulated as they surveilled, harassed, and arrested increasingly large numbers of gay men in the early 1960s. He blended unfounded accusations with homophobia to produce a salacious story of a New Orleans-based scheme to assassinate JFK that would become a national phenomenon. At once a dramatic courtroom narrative and a deeper meditation on the enduring power of homophobia, Cruising for Conspirators shows how the same dynamics that promoted Garrison's unjust prosecution continue to inform conspirational thinking to this day. Again, welcome, Alicia. I'm going to have a, a few questions for you today. Um, your book has been called by commentators uh, Bobby Fiesler, who wrote the Tinderbox about the tragic fire in New Orleans in the early 1970s, and Jim Downs, who wrote the book Stand By Me, both of whom appear on this podcast, by the way. They called your book essential because it clears up, demystifies some of the previous work on assassination conspiracies. Tell us about how you came to write this book. Sure. So, um, my first book was about a prostitution district in New Orleans that existed between 1897 and 1917. And that book grew out of my dissertation, but it also focused on the two sort of scholarly passions I have. And one of those is the history of New Orleans. 
and the other is the history of sexuality. And so when I started research for a second book, I knew I still wanted to stay on both those topics, but I wanted to move into the contemporary period. And so when I started looking at the 1960s in New Orleans, Clay Shaw's prosecution by Jim Garrison really drew my attention. And what I discovered is that there has been a fair amount written about that trial um, and about his prosecution, maybe something in the low double digits. But one of the things I say as I begin the book is that many of these books are very deeply researched, but they tend to focus on a fairly narrow set of questions. And those questions have to do with, um, did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone or was there a larger conspiracy? And if there was a larger conspiracy, did some part of it get planned in New Orleans in the summer of 1963 when Oswald was there? Um, And so these same questions about how many shots were fired, um, was Oswald guilty? All these questions get re-adjudicated time and time again. And what I wanted to do was enter that historical episode from a new direction that brought together my scholarly passions, the history of New Orleans and the history of sexuality, and to really foreground thinking about how those events took place from the perspective of a closeted gay man and a gay community, which had been under um, an enormous amount of pressure um, for most of a decade by the time these events took place. Thank you. Um, well, that definitely comes across when you read this book. Um, it is fascinating. Early on in the book, um, there is a quote from Time Magazine article that called Jim Garrison a conspiracy addict and explained that he used that um, in, in throughout his um, investigations. Tell us more about what they meant. I think I would just say, um, to begin with, you know, there really are uh, people even today who are addicted to questions related to the Kennedy assassination and continue to debate those questions um, with others and explore those questions in the historical records, sort of seeking answers to questions that have never been satisfactorily resolved. But really, um, a conspiracy community emerged right after the Warren Commission issued its report about the assassination in 1964. And so... As you approach the third anniversary of John Kennedy's assassination in the fall of 1966, there are a lot of calls all around the country to reopen the investigation into Kennedy's assassination and to provide answers to the questions that these conspiracy advocates, um, what Time Magazine called addicts, um, what they had raised and whether or not these questions could be answered. And what set Jim Garrison apart from others who were interested in the history of the assassination is that he was a law enforcement official. He was an elected district attorney from New Orleans. And so he had the ability to call in witnesses by issuing subpoenas. He had the ability to arrest people. And if he had uh, sufficient evidence, he could press charges and ultimately bring a case into a court of law. So this is what set him apart. And this is what makes it possible for him to press a case against Clay Shaw in a way that other assassination conspiracy advocates were unable to do. Yeah, um, that is uh, that that 
you get a picture of this man, and I didn't have it before I read it because I didn't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or advocate, um, so I, I didn't. I, I I was little at the time of all this, um, and so um, in our minds, it's exactly what you said. There are a lot of different uh, approaches to this, and that you're taking this fresh approach um, is very nice to read, especially from the LGBT community perspective. Um, there was a lot of uh, going on in that time period in the culture. Culture was beginning to maybe shift, but um, the concept of a connection between the assassination, the city of New Orleans, and homosexuality was almost instant. Um, that Lee Harvey Oswald was regularly in the company of homosexual people um, was going on. That's one of the uh, theories. Why is that important? Well, it's important because for a couple of reasons. One is, um, of course, Oswald is identified as a suspect in the assassination within a couple of hours of it having taken place. And so he becomes literally uh, the star of television coverage day and night over the next couple of days as people uh, listen to him and he talks to reporters. But he has been identified by, at least by the Dallas police who assure the country that he is the assassin um, he's been identified as the assassin of John F. Kennedy. And what one sort of part of Oswald's identity that becomes important very rapidly is that he was a native of New Orleans. He had been born in the city. And though he had been away for long stretches of time, he had spent the previous six months in New Orleans. He was in New Orleans between April and September of 1963. And so there are two different people who call and uh, talk to the FBI and the Secret Service about theories they have about Oswald. And both of them tell two separate stories that involve two different groups of conspirators. Um, There's no overlap in those stories to begin with, except for the fact that they both include accusations that Oswald had been conspiring with or in the company of, at least, homosexual men in New Orleans in the uh, months before the assassination. And so those stories have that in common from the beginning. And those two stories become foundational in Jim Garrison's investigation with some sort of shifting around of the stories and merging of those stories over time. But homosexuality is involved in um, accusations of a New Orleans-based conspiracy from the very beginning, from the weekend after the assassination. Yeah, um, that's uh, that time period uh, was so uh, uh, powerful as far as the LGBT community. That's when a lot of things were beginning to stir. The 1950s and 60s, uh, they were a ripe time for Jim Garrison to start developing his ideas that homosexuals were an easy target strat- strategically and, and that the climate um, was uh, accepted by the population at large. That's the way it should be. Um, tell us about that climate, how, how people had to live, because that is a big piece of the story as well, that the people living in the shadows and, and covering for themselves and living double lives and all of that. Right. I think um, the double life piece of this is very important. And this, the basic narrative is covered by a lot of other historians who have looked at the 1950s and issues related to uh, gay life and LGBT life in American cities during this period of time. But what happened specifically in New Orleans, um, and we believe, you know, New Orleans to be gay friendly, but if you look closely at the history of the 1950s and 1960s, that is not at all the case. And what happened in New Orleans is that um, the French Quarter becomes a place 
where a lot of gay people migrate and begin to live in communities and they become visible in the French Quarter. And that draws a backlash from homophobic reformers who pass new city ordinances and have new state laws passed that keep LGBT people from working in bars or gathering in bars. Um, It even puts sanctions in place for people who knowingly rent to homosexuals. So this was not a friendly climate for gay people in New Orleans during this period of time. And there was a very big campaign throughout the 1950s that sort of peaked in 1958. And from that period forward, the numbers of arrests of gay men in particular, although some women are included in this, but this is largely about um, gay men, their arrest numbers first began to sort of crawl up and then they began to spike by about 1963. So you have dozens, uh, if not hundreds of gay men being hauled in every year. And even if charges are not uh, preferred against them, um, often they are booked. So there is a booking photo made and there'll be an arrest report. And often, as was the uh, tradition at that time, the newspapers would print uh, the arrest records in the crime blotter and they included people's names and home addresses. So this has all kinds of um, effects for people who are caught up in this police a commitment to sort of driving gay people into invisibility if they can do that. And this is all happening at the same time Jim Garrison becomes district attorney in 1962. This is, um, there's a good passage in the book, a lot of good passages in the book, but the passage that stuck out to me, um, you say, although Kinsey's research showed that men having sex with other men was relatively common, Law enforcement figures like Hoover continued to link the allegedly, in quotes, uncontrolled desires, unquote, of homosexual men with criminal psychopathy. More generally, this was just a, a, a natural link in their minds. Um, so basically, gay people were criminals um, to start with. Um, these claims were so durable that Garrison cited the Leopold and Loeb murder in his early theorizing about the culpability of alleged homosexuals in planning the murder of JFK. Um, th- th- this might be a good point because um, you, 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 you've talked about that. This might be a good point for you to do a little reading from the actual, from your book. Um, we'd love to hear something. Okay. This is a passage that talks about Garrison on the verge of becoming district attorney for his second term. And it also raises some issues of potential bribery in his office. This becomes important um, in what follows. So this is um, writing from the perspective of 1965. Garrison had been on one hell of a ride since his unlikely ascendance to the DA's office in 1962. In addition to his legal victories, he had gained national attention for his skillfully publicized war on vice prostitution, and bee drinking on Bourbon Street. All these successes whetted his ambition as he told reporter James Phelan in 1963, quote, there is a certain instinctive tendency to climb where opportunity presents itself. Where exactly he might climb next was anybody's guess. He considered entering races for governor, U.S. Senator, Louisiana Attorney General, or Mayor of New Orleans, He even paid for a billboard that read simply, vote Jim Garrison. It was a canny political provocation since the open-ended message generated public discussion and wariness, but perhaps also some deference on the part of potential electoral opponents. 
In the summer of 1965, just as Garrison was gearing up for a fall election in which he had set his sights on a second term as DA, police superintendent Joseph Giruso began a public campaign to expose what he suggested was evidence of bribe taking in the DA's office. Um, not surprisingly, Garrison's chief investigator, a man named Pershing Gervais, and he's an important figure in the book, was accused of being at the center of the scheme. This particular instance claimed pages and pages of press coverage and originated in late 1964 in the robbery of a modest working class bar. Police quickly located the safe stolen from the bar and the barman, fearful of losing his license, uh, responded positively to an offer he received via an anonymous telephone call. He was told that if he gave $600 to intermediaries, the potentially damaging evidence would disappear, making it all but impossible to pursue a case against him. The barman borrowed the money from his father and initiated the payoff, later telling police he understood that the money would be conveyed to Gervais in the DA's office who would handle the matter. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit and um, connect the dots here. Although evidence related to widespread bribery of homosexual arrestees did not become public at the time, at least one individual later informed the FBI that Garrison's office was manipulating law enforcement actions against this group as a class, probably in exchange for bribes. In 1964, Garrison had assist, insisted that the DA's office was dedicated to vigorous enforcement of the state's crime against nature statute. Writing to the uh, chief of the Metropolitan Crime Commission, Garrison noted that some softening of the statute's literal application had occurred, but, but because of the present psychiatric understanding of homosexuality and because of what the DA described as the steady influx of, quote, priests, preachers, doctors, successful businessmen, and other distinctive citizens that the present police program has been bringing into the criminal court machinery. Nevertheless, Garrison indicated that his office was now operating on a literal application of the law and pursuing such cases vigorously. And so this sort of connects uh, accusations of bribery more generally in Garrison's office to um, accusations that uh, his office may have been involved in widespread bribery of these dozens of gay men who are moving through uh, the law enforcement system in New Orleans in these years. Thank you. Um, there's so many, you mentioned connecting dots. There's so many dots in this. I, I want to talk about your process a little bit later. Um, I, I wanted to... Um, I, uh, ha, get you to tell us a little bit about Clay Shaw, if you can. I, I meant to to, um, to 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 ask you that a little bit earlier, but I forgot. So, um, if you describe who Clay Shaw was and and um, why he was the target of Jim Garrison, and you just set up this perfect the uh, climate where um, Jim Garrison had a motive that had nothing to do with getting at the truth. Um, it seems, and that you know this was uh, this was his whole way he operated. Um, and so tell us how Clay Shaw got tangled up in all that and, and who Clay Shaw was. Sure. Clay Shaw was actually born in Louisiana, in Kentwood, Louisiana, which is the same little town that Britney Spears is from. But Clay Shaw was born there in 1913. And he bounced around some in his early life, but he settled back in New Orleans after World War II. And he became a prominent business executive. He was managing director of something called the uh, International Trademark. He worked there for almost 20 years before he retired. And so he's known in business circles for his job as an executive. But he's also known because he was a person who um, 
did what we now call flipping properties in the French Quarter. He bought derelict buildings in the French Quarter and renovated them and brought them up back to their sort of historical glory, but made them attractive for a contemporary buyers as well. And so he is known in sort of those sorts of business and real estate circles around the city. Um, but he is also a closeted gay man. And he had been sexually active with other men, um, at least since his teens. This was a core part of his identity. But because of what you call very accurately the demand for a double life, that this climate of hostility and law enforcement harassment created, um, he is also closeted sexually. And so it is at the time of his arrest um, that he is outed. um, And this creates real problems for him and his friends and a real, uh, you know, period of pretty tragic soul searching for him about how to proceed going forward. Um, and he, at one point, writes about sort of grieving at a loss of a certain part of his identity, even grieving that. And and I think because of the sort of insistence in many places that people be closeted, I think he understood that this was, it was going to be impossible for him to lead his life the way he had um, up to his arrest on March 1, 1967. Um, the, the, t- the uh, it was a cat and mouse uh, kind of uh, situation for quite a while because uh, Mr. Garrison had kind of sicked his whole team or his whole strategy um, in in ways that were not subtle to get this man. Um, what kind of evidence um, did he actually have, or did he actually fabricate? Well, you know, I want to go back to something you said previously, which is, um, you know, he was determined to bring a case um, and he was determined to bring a case. Um, And I also think he did believe there was a conspiracy in the assassination. But I think he also understood um, that the stories that underwrote his investigation were uh, very flimsy. And when another one of his suspects died suddenly, Um, and the press corps becomes pretty restive uh, in February of 1967, he uh, acts on a hunch that he had had that Clay Shaw was a figure named, uh, who used an alias Clay Bertrand in his gay life. And the significance of that name is, it's not easy for me to summarize here, but I'll just say that it's, it's part of one of those two stories told um, in the weekend after the assassination. And so he claims that Shaw conspired with others um, under the alias Clay Bertrand and that Clay Bertrand and Clay Shaw were one and the same. And it was that reason that he arrested him, but he arrested him on the basis of the testimony of one individual who came forward um, in the week before Clay Shaw was arrested. And this individual had um, a period of time with the DA's office in which his testimony um, was developed, um, not just in intensive questioning and interacting with the DA staff, but also um, being administered sodium pentothal and having uh, um, interrogation sessions under the influence of sodium pentothal and also being uh, hypnotized a number of times. So there's one witness at the time that Shaw is arrested and Garrison had a chance uh, later in court to delineate what other evidence he had at the time. And he refused to answer that question in court. So I'm just going to assume um, that, and based on the historical record, it doesn't seem that there was other significant evidence at the time Clay Shaw was arrested. And we know this 
because Garrison's investigators start scrambling uh, through the French Quarter trying to find someone, anyone, or convince someone, anyone, to also identify Clay Shaw as a person who used the alias Clay Bertrand. They are not successful at doing that. Yeah, I, I mean, the way you're, you're telling that um, and the way the book tells it, it, as a reader, I was fascinated because it kind of read like an old noir movie f- from the decade before the 50s. Um, and yet in New Orleans, everything's a little slower. So it took a couple of decades to get down to New Orleans, that noir theme. Um, but it reads like that, but it also reads like a comedy. I mean, you're thinking this is so absurd. Um, so um, congratulations for making that kind of, uh, you, you have two genres going on, but um, the, uh, you have, uh, the, the, the book is so thorough and you come from an academic world um, and it, it shows in a way that um, it's, uh, it's got, it's got, um, you're compelling and convincing in a way that's because of the thoroughness. And I wanted to talk about that um, process. You had to do so much research. It's apparent without being burdensome to the reader that you have a lot of characters in here. You have to explain them and you have to keep them connected as a writer. Um, I, I had a reader, a writer and a reader, I had to imagine you putting uh, all these post-it notes on a wall to connect these people to keep things straight. Uh, tell us about your research process um, and your discovery process. So there's sort of two things about this project that uh, took a long time, besides probably just the fact that I'm a little bit slow. <laughs> but, but one of them is just the size of um, the secondary and primary literature related to the Kennedy assassination and its aftermath. So there are literally thousands of books um, of widely varying quality, but I had to uh, skill myself up on a lot of that secondary literature. There's also a very large group of primary sources, um, many of them collected at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. I made several trips there. So I had to sort of uh, dig into new primary source documents and secondary source documents as I was doing this. But I also, you know, I was trained as an academic historian in my first book. While I think it tells a good story is probably um, probably reflects its scholarly origins more than this book does. And part of what I attempted to do here and my editor um, at UNC Press named Brandon Proya really helped me um, figure out how to do this because it wasn't a natural register for me, but to write it in a way that it is a consistent narrative, that it's not bogged down by any kind of scholarly apparatus, but that it is really um, a narrative. And, you know, it's a complex story. And believe me, despite the broad number of characters, uh, historical figures who appear in the book, I left a lot of it on the cutting room floor (laughs) um, in in the service of trying to tell a coherent story and not introduce uh, too many people. But you are right that it is sometimes so unbelievable (laughs) that if if you didn't have the grounding um, in the uh, primary source documents and the reliable secondary source material, you know, it it would be easy to think some of this was being made up. But these were the things that were actually happening on the ground in New Orleans. Uh, And I think in the the book, I call it sort of an example of, uh, you know, extreme prosecutorial misconduct. And, um, but we know that there's a predicate for that um, in the earlier 1960s with Garrison. So that's sort of how I came to writing it the way I did. And I hope people do find it a compelling narrative. And then for the folks who want to dig into the footnotes and the research and that is there as well 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it comes across as it's it's compelling. It reads like a thriller, um, and like I said, it and, and, and a noir, uh, classic noir, because all these characters that, that you know, there's a lot of shade going on. So you're going. Uh, this is it was a fun book to read, and yet it had a lot of uh, heft to it. It was like this is serious. Um, and it does, um, if, if you had any kind of understanding of what was happening back then, for, for young people who were born beyond that period, maybe, maybe they, they, didn't, they haven't absorbed as much over the years that those of us who have lived through it um, could have. But uh, still, there, there are so many things uh, that you reveal in all this work. Um, that that were new to me as a as a reader to this, even though I had some some background, um, so, some exposure to it, um, and um, I found it completely completely fascinating and titillating because I wanted to see how I couldn't wait to see to the end how did this turn out? You know, it wasn't even though you know how it kind of broadly turns out, you just think, well, no, this is such a a good ride as a, as a reader. So congratulations on pulling that off with all of this work because uh, your editor, you said, uh, helped to uh, make it um, not so, um, not, not difficult to get through. It, it definitely was not. Um, it was, uh, it's that word compelling. It compelled, it propelled. Uh, I couldn't wait to get to the next chapter as I was reading. So that's, that's exciting. Thank you for saying so. I really appreciate that. Oh yeah. Um, it's, uh, we've had some fun books on this podcast, but this, uh, this is right, right, right at the top up there with a lot of good stuff to chew on as a reader. It's a fun read because if you're into history in any way, um, you have a gift for making it come to life in this book. Um, um, I haven't had the pleasure of reading the other books yet. I'll probably get to those soon. Um, but this one, um, I, I, I could see it so visually as you're telling it. So um, that that really is a gift. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask, um, I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time. We try to keep the podcast digestible for our audience. Um, but I wanted to ask you about um, your final thoughts on the story itself. If you are, will there be um, more coming about this in your work and your research and writing? Or um, are you, uh, have you put this to bed in your mind? So there are a couple of answers to that question. And one is I, I do expect a response to the book. Um, you know, both from people in New Orleans and uh, people interested in LGBT history, because those are two important audiences. But I also say there's a community of people who have written about and uh, continue to debate the uh, the reliability of uh, Jim Garrison's uh, investigation and the uh, prosecution of Clay Shaw. And, and that literature is very polarized. And I'm going to say that while I make uh, many judgment calls based on evidence in this book, one of the things I was trying to do is give everybody a fair shake. That doesn't mean that people get away without being critiqued, but I tried to be honest about um, who these people were as characters. And when they had exemplary um, talents or um, a skill for doing something, I, I tried to make that clear. And that doesn't mean I'm cheerleading for either side. And again, I come down on one side of this by the time I get to the end of the book. But I do think I've provided an accurate picture of that uh, set of events and those immediate decades in New Orleans um, through a real close look at the historical record. And so, you know, I don't know how folks on uh, the pro Jim Garrison or the pro Clay Shaw side of this are likely to see it, but, you know, I've done my best. And um, so, you know, the baby is born and is going to go out there into the world and uh, we'll see what kind of reception it gets. 
I would anticipate being just a lowly reader <laughs> that it's going to get a great reception because you're right. You're, you're going to pull there are people on, on all sides of this. There's more, there's more than meets the eye to anyone who takes this um, on as a reader. Um, so there are a lot of fun surprises, a lot of alarming things that happen. There's a lot of really sadness in the, in the, in the, in the fact of the, the homophobic world um, in that time period. It's not over. For people in the LGBT community, it's not over by far, but um, it was so much more um, uh, powerful, strong, uh, life controlling back then um, than the freedoms that we enjoy now. Um, and can hard- I say something about that? I, I'm sorry yes. to interrupt you. I apologize. No, no. no go ahead. But, I mean, what I wanted to say is that, you know, I think one of the reasons that nobody has written about Clay Shaw's story. Uh, from the point of view of situating it squarely in LGBT history is because he stayed closeted. Right. And his ordeal is followed several months later by Stonewall. And so his reactions to having been outed are uh, ambivalent. And I think they're worth thinking about because of the larger context surrounding him, but it doesn't make him uh, necessarily, you know, a gay hero, (laughs) Right. Um, it makes him a victim. I think he was definitely that. But it's, it's I think for a, a, you know, a modern generation where coming out is um, for many people as um, important as and as essential as breathing, um, his decisions um, are a little obscure. And I think if you read the book, you'll understand them. But, you know, part of what I try to do is, is bring those things together. I hope, you know, I hope I was successful um, and I hope he gets another close look um, from all kinds of people and particularly his longer legal legacy, which I talk about in the final chapter of the book. Yeah. um, I think you succeeded um, because you humanized him. He was kind of almost a mythic figure. You know, there isn't a whole lot about him in, um, in popular culture anymore. Things, you know, times, time, time fades things, but um, you, you, you make him a real, uh, you, you, he comes across as a real person, a real trouble person as far as uh, he, he, he was caught in many ways um, and in, in circumstances that, you know, he, he really had no control over. And he was, he was, I think as a reader, I got that he was a victim. That's how I felt that, the, that Garrison was really kind of a monster. Um, and um, that, that was my own opinion formed from the, you know, the, the evidence you, you generously share with us. Um, I, I, I want to um, ask you about um, a follow-up to that question is where are you going next as, um, as a historian, um, as far as uh, your research and writing? So I have uh, two or three projects cooking in my brain at the moment. Um, But I do want to say that uh, one of the things that is true about the research for this book, um, because it took so long, is that I did leave a lot out. And one of the things I was really struck by is both the ubiquity and the virulence of violence uh, perpetrated against gay men during the 1950s and 1960s. And and so uh, and specifically in New Orleans, though I'm sure this is true elsewhere, and, and there are avenues of the book where um, I had a lot of research, I think pretty compelling research that I wasn't able to include. And so I hope at some point to uh, bring that material together uh, in a new and different way. But I'm on sort of, um, you know, a uh, thinking about where I want to go next um, trip, I guess. And uh, we'll see where I, uh, where I land. Um, well, um, I, I anticipate that it whatever you do is going to be 
um, fun to read, <laughs> interesting, compelling. Um, you you have again. Let me reiterate that for the readers out there, um, listeners out there, um, that this book really pulls you in, and um, it's so uh, visual, so uh, graphic in many ways, um, and it touches you. It's like if you're a member of the LGB community, you cannot not be touched by by this because it does exactly that. It illustrates. Um, how horrible those times were. And so you can understand why Clay Shaw made some of his decisions. Like put it, put yourself in his shoes. Um, the, the, you, you're right. Stonewall didn't have, hadn't happened yet. Things weren't moving that in that direction yet. There, there were maybe in the shadows moving, but um, there wasn't, it wasn't a movement yet. So he, he was a product of his time. And um, that definitely comes across that Garrison, um, the fact of Jim Garrison, I mean, in, in the um, there that that movie by Oliver Stone a few years back, maybe twenty years back, it's few in 30. my life. Thirty, a, oh my goodness! Thirty um, anniversary of that you, movie. Yeah. He 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 made them. Uh, he made the whole uh, Shaw uh, piece uh, kind of uh, like a clown. It was kind of it was insulting, I think, um, as a viewer. I was like. Um, that was a little bit gross. Um, so I was very, very happy to see this. And I agree with those commentators about your book who said you have really um, cleared a, a lot, a, up a lot of the uh, misinformation that is out there. And you, it's documented. It's, it's, you've done, you're, you're literally done your homework. <laughs> it's, and, and we get to be the beneficiaries of all that work. So um, well, you made me very happy complimenting me as a writer because that's very important to me. And so thank you so much for that. And I do hope it's a book that people enjoy, but also read and engage with. And I look forward to talking to all kinds of communities of people about the book. Um, so thank you for giving me this opportunity and thank your listeners for um, listening and letting me make a case for the book. Well, uh, you are most uh, welcome and thank you for participating. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things we don't always know when we ask um, if an author will be available or interested in coming on the podcast. And so um, that you said yes was uh, terrific for us all. Um, we've, we're going to wrap this up. So I just want to let you know it was a terrific, terrific book to read. Readers should read it. It's called Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Kennedy Assassination as a Sex Crime. It's out now at, from the University of North Carolina Press, and um, it can be um, – is there going to be an audio book? I don't know the answer to that question, not presently, but it is available on um, any place you can buy a book. Um, exactly. You can buy Cruising for Conspirators. Yeah. Um, so it was it's a it's a thrill ride. It's a, a fun book uh, and heavy at the same time. It's not light at all. It's got it's substantive. You're going to uh, leave this book um, with a lot of um, uh, not bruises, but a lot, a lot of uh, indentations on your brain because you you put them you, you give them to us all. So thank you for that. Um, this is thank this is, has been a, a really pleasure to read. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.